Greetings, and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. I'm your host, Ted Flanagan, and this episode of Ecologic features Econet News, May 31st, 2023, Volume 25, Issue Number 5. Flanagan's Ecologic, Crafting Intentional Community. Many of us aspire to lead a sustainable life. We lower our footprints and triumph internally. We address the spheres of sustainability, our energy use, water, material management, the built and natural environments. But what about well-being? How do we feel? How at ease are we? Daily anxiety? How supported do we feel? Do you feel? Do I feel? Ecomotion graphically depicts the path to a sustainable lifestyle. One leg of the stool, one pillar, is health and well-being. Health is about what you eat. It's about working out and helping others out. It's about being engaged socially and volunteering. This week I read about an intentional community. I love the notion of leading a life of intentionality and living in an intentional community. This article features one such story from Portland, Oregon. Intentional communities can be many things. They can be perceived as social or communal experiments, some of which work out just fine. The term covers collective households, co-housing communities, eco-villages, monasteries, ashrams, housing cooperatives, and more. Intentional communities are voluntary residential communities designed to have a higher degree of social cohesion and teamwork. On the flip side are single-use neighborhoods. Never heard that term before, but I get it. Single-use plastics are short-sighted. Single-use neighborhoods? Hey, I grew up on Long Island and I and know my Levittowns and their developments of cookie-cutter homes. The single-use bedroom communities that many of us live in, myself included, are designed without intention for social interaction or well-being through diversity. Multi-use developments are rich. They are deliberate, intentional. They thrive on ethnic, age, and gender diversity. They provide lots of uses, places to live, to eat, to socialize, to work, to garden, to play music, to learn. They are walkable and bikeable. They mix housing with commerce and culture. They rely on webs, ecosystems, and integration. They literally and figuratively serve companion planting. Village Homes in Davis, California, was cutting-edge co-housing project built in the 1970s. It features rainwater and solar harvesting, shared permaculture landscapes. It was built out in 1982 as a model of environmentally friendly housing and drew the interest of many and a visit from French President Francois Mitterrand. Nice story from Portland, Oregon where a couple bought a dilapidated building in 2007 and turned it into an intentional community brimming with community gardens. It's now a thriving eco-village. Four miles from Pioneer Square in the city center, the place was run down, most units unlivable, some overtaken by the unhoused. Ole and Maitri Urson had a vision. The first order of business was to tear up the parking lot to unpave paradise. They also tore up the lawn and infilled pool and replaced them with an orchard, vineyard, berry patches, 
and vegetable gardens. They remodeled 50 apartments, all with composting toilets. The building has solar panels that provide 75% of the power requirement there and a rainwater harvesting system to complement a 100-foot well. There are beehives. There's composting plus humanure and urine fertilizer processing facilities. Today, the two-acre parcel is a cornucopia producing lots of fruits and vegetables. It is nearly independent in terms of electricity, water, sewer, and trash. Residents use shared electric vehicles, bicycles, and gardening tools. One-bedroom apartments are for rent for about $1,000. Residents are expected to work at least an hour a month in the community garden. Named Kailash Eco Village, there is now a 300-plus person waiting list for rentals there. Lots of Portlanders are eager to sign up for this intentional community's community membership. Quote of the Month Imagine fully assembled wind turbines capable of generating 20 megawatts of energy towed by sea from the port of Long Beach to offshore wind farms in central and northern California. Mario Cordero, Port of Long Beach, Executive Director. Rechargeable Batteries Last month's article on properly disposing of alkaline batteries drew a number of comments. One of my favorite comments was, why not advocate rechargeable batteries? The reader noted that he recharges his AA's and AAA's as many as 100 times. That keeps them out of the landfill, doesn't it? I agree with the reader and pledge to purchase rechargeable batteries from my remotes after studying the matter. Forget the Energizer Bunny. It's a myth. Those batteries die too, unless you buy Energizer's rechargeable batteries. Popular Mechanics reports that if you opt for disposable single-use batteries, you're contributing to the estimated 3 billion of them that end up in the landfills each year. Go the rechargeable route, and replacing batteries is much less of a drain on your wallet and the environment. You can generally recharge a rechargeable battery 100 times. Some batteries can handle more than 1,000 recharges. AA and AAA rechargeable batteries come in two main types, nickel metal hydride and lithium ion. Nickel metal hydride are more popular and have been available longer. Nickel metal hydride generally outlast lithium ones. They retain their power better when sitting on the shelf or in a remote or digital camera or wall clock. On the other hand, lithium batteries are a bit stronger. 1.5 volt output versus 1.2 for nickel metal hydride. Thus, the rechargeable lithium-ion batteries are better for motorized products, such as electric toothbrushes. Then there's recharging. It takes 3 to 7 hours to recharge nickel metal hydride, 1 to 2 for lithium. There are markedly small marginal costs and huge life cycle benefits of rechargeable batteries. I did the math using Amazon prices. An 8-pack of Duracell Power Boost AA's costs $7.24. Eight Panasonic Eneloop rechargeable batteries, which can be recharged 2,100 times, cost $24.48 plus $11.99 for an eight battery charging bay. So for $36.47, I now have eight batteries that can be recharged 2,100 times. Thus, I could avoid the purchase of 2,099 single-use battery sets 
at a cost of $15,196. Yes, that's a pathway to thousands of dollars of savings over time. What a deal. Taxes and shipping not applied. Dutch Solar Cycling Paths The Netherlands, in the Dutch province of North Brabant, a new 500-meter-long bike path is being built. It's one of several similar installations being used to test the efficacy of solar systems embedded in pavement over a five-year period. At this installation, 600 panels will be integrated into the bike path's asphalt layer. This path will be along the provincial NM285 near Wagenburg. Two similar systems have been deployed along the N395 near Orschat and along the N324 near Grave, also in North Brabant. The Netherlands features other solar roads. There's a solar bike path near Amsterdam and another in the province of Utrecht. These projects are part of the Dutch government plan to test the viability of solar embedded in paths, along highways, and on noise barriers. Dutch authorities are struggling to find places to site solar due to scarcity of land. Thus, they are looking at non-agricultural land, dikes, rooftops, as well as onshore and offshore water services. This new bike path and others will, will serve as test cases. This new bike path and others will serve as test cases, assessing the resistance, mechanical stress of pedestrians and bikers. Long Beach plans offshore wind hub. The Port of Long Beach is planning a project called Pier Wind that would support the manufacture and assembly of offshore wind turbines on the west coast of the United States. The facility would span 400 acres of newly built land within Long Beach's Harbor District. Construction could start in 2027 for partial operations in 2031. Second and third phases would be complete by 2035. It's a $4 billion project and the port is negotiating with federal and state officials for support. Long Beach claims that its harbor is ideally located for such an enterprise, with a calm sea behind a federal breakwater. It's one of the deepest and widest channels in the United States, with direct access to the open ocean and no air height restrictions. The port believes that no other location has the space to achieve the economies of scale needed to drive down the cost of energy for these huge turbines. In December of 2022, the U.S. Bureau of Ocean Management selected the winners of California's first offshore wind lease sale. RWE Offshore Wind Holdings, Equinor Wind U.S., Invenergy California Offshore, California North Floating, and Central California Offshore Wind won the rights to develop floating wind projects across the five lease areas in Humboldt Bay, Morro Bay, off the northern and central coasts of California. The five areas have an installation capacity of 4.5 gigawatts. Pier Wind could contribute towards lowering the cost of offshore wind power by 75% by 2035 and to meet California's goal of producing 25 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2045. Meanwhile, the project could bring lots of jobs to communities closest to the port, which have been adversely impacted by climate change and local air pollution. As such, and given major advances in floating wind turbines, 
hubs like these are popping up around the world, from Brooklyn, New York, to New London, Connecticut, and Louisiana, and potentially at Port Taranaki in New Zealand. Port Esbjerg in Denmark is the world's largest base port for offshore wind activities. It has been involved in shipping components to more than 60 offshore wind projects, including the Dogger Bank wind farms in the South North Sea of the United Kingdom. The port is one of the world's largest originating ports for wind power, shipping out up to 1,500 megawatts of offshore wind turbines each year. Port Esjerg is also home to more than 200 businesses that employ over 10,000 people. Tribal and Chinese Storage Projects The California Energy Commission has issued a $31 million grant to build a 60-megawatt-hour long-duration energy storage system to provide backup power to the Viejas tribe of Kumenye Indians and bolster the reliability of the energy system statewide. It is the largest grant for an energy project ever given to a tribe in California. The battery energy storage system will be paired with 30,000 photovoltaic panels for 15 megawatts of capacity. Initial installation is pegged for 2023, with the entire project slated to be online in 2024. The project will include 10 megawatt hours of vanadium redox flow batteries developed by Invinity Energy Systems. This is expected to be the largest deployment of flow batteries in the country. The flow batteries will be paired with a 35 megawatt hour, 10 hour zinc hybrid cathode battery system developed by EOS Energy Enterprises. The remaining 15 megawatt hours will be lithium ion technologies. So far, more than four gigawatts of battery storage has been installed in California in the independent system operator's footprint. And the state projects that it will need 48 gigawatts of long-duration energy storage by 2045. This is the first project to be awarded in the state's $140 million long-duration energy storage incentive fund. It will be developed by Indian Energy, a Native American-owned microgrid developer. Shifting technologies and continents, let's revisit gravity storage. Energy Vault, the Swiss company known for its huge grains and blocks, is now completing a gravity, gravity energy storage project near Shanghai in China. The systems are touted as very basic and loosely translated. They lift heavy things, and when energy is needed, the thing can fall. At that time, potential energy is converted back into electricity. Energy Vault's gravity-based storage system does not rely on land topography or geology and can be built almost anywhere. The systems can be co-located with wind or solar projects or be built alone to support grid stability through dispatch. Conceptually, Energy Vault is an alternative to conventional pump storage hydropower. Instead of lifting water, Energy Vault lifts cement, polymer-based composite bricks. The bricks can be made of ultra-low-cost materials such as soil, mine tailings, coal ash, and incinerated city waste. Energy Vault takes material that would otherwise be landfill and repurposes it for gravity storage. Each brick is designed to weigh 35 metric tons and engineered to have a specified gravity or, or relative density at least twice that of water. 
Energy Vault's original system consisted of a combination of blocks and a tall tower. Cranes lift blocks 35 stories in the air. Now the towers have been replaced by large buildings that house hoists internally. And unlike chemical batteries, the bricks do not degrade, and conventional lift technology is more efficient than water pumping. The Energy Vault Resilience Center, a mechanical process and energy management system, raised 30-ton bricks. When needed, the bricks are lowered in elevator shafts, releasing kinetic energy back to the grid. Each brick lowered at 6 feet per second can generate a megawatt of power. The systems can be scaled to 10 megawatt-hour units. For a waste management and recycling company in China, Energy Vault is building a 25 megawatt, 100 megawatt-hour energy storage capacity, expected to be complete in June of 2023. The facility being built for the China Tianying Group in Rudong, China, is under construction. It looks like a huge multi-story warehouse. The EVX Gravity Energy Story System is adjacent to a wind farm in the Jingzhou province outside of Shanghai. The facility's dispatchable capacity will feed into the State Grid Corporation of China, the, world just, the world's largest utility serving 1.1 billion citizens. Meanwhile, Energy Vault announced in January that it is working with Pacific Gas and Electric to develop a 293 megawatt hour hybrid system for the city of Calistoga to provide 48 hours of resilience during public safety power shutoff events. In this case, energy will be stored in the form of green hydrogen and in batteries. Rural Electrification 101 In 2019, 770 million people live without access to electricity, 10.2% of the global population in that year. That number is likely smaller now, perhaps 500 million, 22 times the population of the New York metropolitan area, but spread in rural and remote areas, often islands. Rural electrification is the process of bringing electrical power to these areas. Bringing electricity to the last 5% is the most difficult, as the unit cost of hookups is greater in sparsely populated areas. Developing countries are impeded with rural electrification, given the high capital costs of power system infrastructure. The societal benefits of having access to electricity are profound and multiple. Increased education and literacy thanks to light. Schools can recruit better teachers. Students get higher test scores raising the human capital entering the workforce. Electrification boosts productivity and efficiency. Businesses keep their doors open longer and earn additional revenues. With electricity, farmers have access to modern controls for irrigation, crop processing, and food preservation. Healthcare gets a lot better. Refrigerators store and extend the life of vaccines. Electrification reduces isolation thanks to telephone lines and television. There's improved safety with street lighting, less purchasing of expensive kerosene. Sustainable Development Goal 7, SDG 7 or Global Goal 7, is one of the 17 Sustainable Development Goals established by the United Nations General Assembly in 2015. It aims to ensure access to affordable, reliable, sustainable, and modern energy for all. Energy is considered an important pillar for well-being. There are currently 46 countries designated by the United Nations 
as least developed countries, LDCs. This status is based on three criteria. The first is that gross national income per capita must be less than $1,025. It is also based on human assets, including nutrition, health, education, and literacy, as well as the country's economic vulnerability. Of the 46 LDCs, 33 are in Africa, 9 are in Asia, 3 are in the Pacific, and 1 is in the Caribbean, Haiti. Some LDCs are slated for graduation, such as Bhutan in 2023 and the Solomon Islands in 2024. Despite the benefits of and the United Nations' focus on rural electrification, over half the people in the least developed countries lack access to electricity. This represents about two-thirds of the world population without electricity. Even in some LDC urban centers, a third of the people do not have electricity. Electrification generally begins in cities and towns and then expands outward gradually. The challenge has been figuring out how to work directly with rural areas to develop viable models and to leapfrog the typical crawl of electrification. Options for rural electrification are grid extensions, mini-grids, and standalone systems, the latter at the building level. Instead of extending central power system and incurring the cost of grid extensions to sparsely populated areas, mini-grids are now being developed. Given the falling costs of batteries, they make more sense. They rely on photovoltaics, wind and mechanical water pumps, small wind electric systems, diesel-slash-solar hybrid systems, that are used extensively for telecom systems, bioenergy, and microhydro. Many systems mix and match different resources. These are promising alternatives for rural and remote areas that previously turned towards diesel generators. That's it. Thanks for listening to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time.